This is Ron Friends, comics illustrator, and this is a bumper for the amazing Spider Talk. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle all the questions and the webs left out to tangle. I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon. They'll bend your ears with reckless self abandon. Hello and welcome to The Amazing Spider Talk. My name is Dan Gavostin and I'm the founder and editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. And I'm Mark Chinacchio, founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and currently an editor at Superior Spider Talk. That's right you are, Mark. Well, Yes, I am. That's why I just said it. (laughs) That is your name. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for joining us for a special Essentials episode of Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans, or maybe even three this time, and collectors, as we hope to look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. And I was lying. I know there's three of us, because this week we're joined by a very special guest, Alan Shurstall, film editor for The Village Voice and lifelong Spider-Man fan. Thanks for joining us, Alan. Hey, thank you for having me, guys, and thank you for uh, inviting me on for an essential episode, not one of those ones that you can just skip over. (laughs) (laughs) The essentials Uh, episodes are a lot less special now that we do them more often than the regular show. (laughs) Can can I geek out for a moment? Well, I mean, I'm just very happy to be on for this issue because it is right in the thick of the original run when I first discovered Spider-Man when I was a kid. You know, I was looking at a spinner rack for... For Star Wars comics and like what 1983 was this and you know the cover of one of the issues we'll talk about today just called to me in a way that I, I really felt like lured to it. it was just powerful it was like the sirens luring Odysseus you know to crash on the rocks so I crashed on the rocks of Spider-Man because of Ron Friends is drawing a puma and I you know hooked for life you know hooked for life it was so good Except actually, you know, I was like, what, 10 then? I stopped being hooked for life when I was 15, right around issue 308 or so, when Mary Jane kept getting kidnapped and his marriage had come out of nowhere. And suddenly the book's kind of lurid and dumb. But, you know, I I was a very smart collector. I stopped collecting in the early McFarlane years. (laughs) No sticks and stone for you. No sticks and stones for me. (laughs) Which which is making the nine, ten-year-old... Mark, just cry hearing you say that you stopped reading during the Mc, the McFarlane era, since that was like that was my that was my entry. Actually, my first issue was uh, the cover was an Alex Savia cover with uh, Doc Ock, um, but, but then of course McFarlane came in like two issues after that, and then and then like little Mark was transformed. <laughs> this is going to sound awesome. This is going to sound vain and self-important, but I swear I'm going to undercut it immediately. I was a smart kid who read too much, and uh, my older brother was giving me so much crap for reading comic books and for reading, like, the sort of Shannara and David Eddings novels that right around the time I was 14 or 15, I kicked all of that to the curb, and I vowed that I'm only going to read the things I need to know when I go to college to be a writer, and obviously that's Dickens. So I stopped reading (laughs) Spider-Man, and I tried to read my way through Dickens. And that was your Spider-Man No More moment. (laughs) It absolutely was. Oh, that's beautiful. Did you throw your comics in a trash can? Perfectly laid out? But I did read them in the bathtub so that when I sold them at like age 18, I got nothing for them. But I was was back on board uh, not... You know, after the Clone Saga, I actually got back on board in the worst possible time with the Burn Mackie run. So there you go. Well, before this. Still waiting to find out who blew up that plane. You'll never know. Um, before before this becomes the longest intro in the history of... Uh, I'm sorry, everybody. No, no, no. It's, uh, ta- tangents are awesome. Uh, <laughs> right, Dan? Dan is just like, 
looking at the computer screen in agony right now. Um, <laughs> no, um, as we indicated, we're, we're, we're talking about issues from the 80s. And for this episode, we'll be discussing uh, our essential of the week. This is Dan's pick. It's All My Past Remembered from Amazing Spider-Man number 259, written by the legendary Tom DeFalco. And even if that wasn't in the notes, I know that we're contractually obligated to say legendary Tom DeFalco. <laughs> and uh, penciled by friend of the show, Ron Frentz. And then we'll conclude with some Flash Thompson Flash reviews. Dad, will Flash be here? Will he be by a letter? Will he... I, we don't know. And that's the fun. And <laughs> Well, Mark and Alan, before this gets any further afield, let's get on to with this review before all of my pasts become forgotten. Dan, so um, after a string of episode essential episodes that were, were, were my picks, this is your second uh, essential pick in a row. So explain to explain to us all why Amazing Spider-Man number two fifty nine is an essential issue for you. Well, there's many reasons, but the primary one for me is that this is for those unfamiliar. The origin story of Mary Jane. Now, that might seem weird that we're getting an origin story over 200 issues after her introduction. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I think, what is it, 217 issues later. uh, But this is the first one that tells us what happened before the fateful events of Amazing Spider-Man 42 and how Mary Jane became the person that she is, well, today, today being in the 80s. And what's so interesting about this is that it's a, a giant retcon that basically tells you that all of the things that we've seen from Mary Jane previously were kind of a put on. Uh, to kind of hide a tragedy in her past or what she considers a failing in responsibility, uh, which might sound familiar to many of you uh, as it is similar to Peter's origin. Surprise. Um, And this is the rare example for me of a retcon in a comic that both enriches the stories going forward but also completely changes all the stories prior in a way that makes them much deeper uh, and and makes the character a fully formed character. And I think this is the issue where Mary Jane is able to escape uh, from being a Silver Age girlfriend <laughs> alone and and becomes a fully formed character that I think many people were taken with. I, I think if Mary Jane were killed off or, um, you know, I, I guess it's still prior to the marriage, but uh, if... If she faded away, people would not have been as upset prior to this issue than after. I think it completely changes Mary Jane fundamentally as a character. And I also think this issue is special because it's one of the few Spider-Man issues that I can think of that has no superheroics in it. And I think that is something that is so special about Spider-Man, especially during this era, that this character is so strong that you can get an issue of two characters, mainly just two characters talking to each other about their lives, and you care so much about this cast that you don't mind that there's no punching going on. Not that that's essential, but I, can, I can't think of another superhero comic that could do that and, and have people walk away saying this is one of the strongest you know, ish, uh, issues of the series yet. So that's the reasons I think that this book is essential. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, Dan, I, I enjoy this issue a lot. And, and, you know, when I did the the Peter MJ story countdown, this this clocked in at number four on my list for those stories. So obviously I have a, a lot of regard. But I, I do have to kick it off with kind of the the 800-pound gorilla, which is, you know, d- does the essentialness of this story get negated by the fact that, you know, 
the 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 importance of this character is no longer as you know as important as it were because of what's happened over the last decade between Peter and MJ. It's an interesting point, um, you know, and I suspect MJ will return to the cast. She's been gone for several years now, in in any kind of meaningful form, but. Yeah, that, that's a great question, especially when we've already posed several MJ stories for our essentials list. Um, do but MJ is not just essential to, you know, the Amazing Spider-Man comic series at this point. You know, I don't like the term mythos that fans turn throw around, you know, which really just means all the dumb stuff associated with the superhero I like. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, Mary Jane is... You know, she's not in the most recent Spider-Man movies, but if you ask the average person who is Spider-Man's girlfriend, they're going to say, oh, Kirsten Dunst, when he kissed her on, upside down and he sneaked a wet T-shirt into a PG-13. You know, that's Mary Jane. And everything in this story informs Sam Raimi's take on the character. Uh, she is fundamental. She is this retcon. And then in the, of course, the graphic novel that came later, uh, wires her into almost practically Peter's origin at this point. And I think this is the reason why fans are so unwilling to accept another woman to be with uh, Peter Parker, because this very comic gives us that backstory, gives her that sense of tragedy that links them together in a very special way, that they both are dealing with a similar uh, I guess, uh, uh, a shame in their lives. What slays me about this comic and just kind of talking a little bit about like the broader context and the back office stuff is, and, and I think we, we, we asked DeFalco and, and maybe friends about this is they, even like while they were working on this issue, there was still the, like they still make it sound like they were convinced that these two weren't going to end up together. Mm-hmm. That, that, that this was all that 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 marriage is still that's Jim Shooter and that's him wanting the big event and oh what a, how how can you marry Spider Man blah blah blah, um but like like you said I mean as and as we'll probably discuss with some of the finer points here I mean this this issue really does in many ways both you know kind of big ways and more nuanced make her the match for peter you know like, mm-hmm. like so how do you how do you put this issue forward and then be like yeah but they're not gonna end up together i mean it's like <laughs> well it's it's back and forth on that in in the issue and in the issues you know leading up to it and immediately after it you know where peter i forget if whether it's at the end of this issue or if it's in uh the next one where peter is wondering boy i'm starting to feel this certain way about her but i love the black cat <laughs> yeah it's in this issue yeah absolutely you know, and this issue follows, you know, one of the one of the great all time, uh, you know, Spider-Man Archie moments where, you know, in in uh, 258, where. After, just after Mary Jane has said to him, I know you're Spider-Man, uh, and Black Cat bursts into the room while Peter's trying to decide whether or not to lie to her. And I think that moment informs this issue in such a key, crucial way that I would argue that maybe this issue on its own is not the essential pick, and maybe this issue and the three issues before it, but we'll, we can get to that in a minute. But, you know, this issue is not just like a retcon of their relationship. This issue is like an almost profound, you know, consideration of like an adult truth that I think Peter had not learned at this point, which is that other people notice him. Other people have inner lives. And maybe Mary Jane had this inner life this whole time and he just never caught on. And I don't know if you've had this happen with you where you run into like an old friend from high school and you're like, oh, wait, you were suffering and interesting and I didn't know it back then. And (laughs) this issue gets to that. This is... I think, you know, one of the most adult issues of Spider-Man has ever been. It's hard to imagine something like, uh, you know, the ultimate Spider-Man, like what was it, number 13, where Peter and Mary Jane just sit and talk and kiss for that that first time. It's hard to imagine that existing without this. Uh, You know, this is, I think, one of the most potent, powerful, you know, Spider-Man stories since the origin, you know, in its density, in its attention to psychological reality, and in its attention to the way that both of these characters genuinely, you know, kind of beat up on themselves and carry the weight of the world on them, even though nobody's putting it there. It's interesting that you compare it to Amazing Fantasy 15, because this, the, the art style here by Ron Friends 
is very much in line with Dicko in many ways, with the nine panel pages. And I always think back to the you know Amazing Fantasy 15 and how efficient it was in its storytelling. It's 11 pages, and you get this really amazing psychological story about uh, this character. Every word is is chosen just right and every image is perfect at conveying what it wants to convey. And I don't I think I would put this issue up there in, in that regard. You get this entire backstory for Mary Jane and her family that, you know, maybe it's a little cliche today, but I think appearing in a comic then with spousal abuse and uh, and how that affects uh, children psychologically and how that ripples through time. I, I, I can't imagine many other superhero comics wrestling with something like that uh, in the pages of the books uh, you know, this early in the 80s, I guess. And not doing it superficially. There's something complex and fascinating about the relationship between Mary Jane and a sister, which is the kind of thing that you would think a comic book editor would cut out. Like, why do we need this extra character? Why do we need all this? All these extra proper nouns that this character brings into the story and all these extra designs we have to do. But no, I mean, it, it absolutely richens her uh, to where – when we get to like Amazing Spider-Man 312 and she's a supermodel who gets kidnapped and yells at Peter all the time for risking his life, it's that character's unrecognizable to me from this character. Really I was going to say the side – for me, the side story with – I shouldn't even call it a side story. But the, the added element of her relationship with her sister is actually kind of what um, elevates – MJ's origin kind of above some of the cliched elements uh, that existed with her and her parents. And, 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 and I mean, I'm not trying to belittle or, or be glib about, you know, parental abuse and things like that. But I, I mean, I, when I've talked about this issue in the past, I've always kind of groaned about the fact that it's like, you know, why, why, why does it seem like every character in, 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 you know, fiction a la comics or, or even a lot of movies too, where, you know, that has commitment issues. It's, it comes from, it comes from the parents somehow. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like, and, and I know it's like that because that's reality, but also it's like, you know, would love to see something kind of interesting. And to me, the, the relationship with the sister is that interesting. The fact that, um, she would abandon her sister. Mm-hmm. Um, is is like that was always kind of the the turn of the screw for me with this with with MJ as being oh wow there, there there is really something different and unique there that you you maybe not get with a lot of other characters you might have read about in the past. I think the abandonment is like the key thing too because I think the easy way to write this would be to just have her witness the tragedy that happens to her sister and that she her I guess. Uh, husband or our boyfriend at the time abandoned the, the her, their children, um, and she, seeing that and having her be like, "I don't want to be that person," but that she feels this guilt for abandoning her sister, like you said, Mark. Yeah, makes it all the more complicated and interesting. And also making it complicated and interesting is the fact that. Peter and Mary Jane's relationship at this point is not sexual. I mean, I actually kind of prefer when it was unclear whether the relationships are sexual or not. I just assume they are when I'm an adult, but uh, that, you know, they do ultimately conclude on this level of friendship and that, you know, I mean, this is a book I read at 10 years old and I can't think of anything else I would have read at that time that depicted just a mature relationship between a man and a woman who are very close friends, unburdening their hearts and their pain to each other and finally learning to be honest with each other. You know, in the way Friends draws Peter throughout this issue, granted he's in a ridiculous outfit and these purple <laughs> tennis shoes and, and no, no undershirts. <laughs> but there's – it's like you can see even as the things Mary Jane is telling him are heartrending, there is also a lightness to him and a connection that he's feeling with her that is very rare to see in this character who was always, always closed off from everyone else who's close to him. And it's especially you know compelling and exciting coming after several issues in a row where Peter is borderline, if not – absolutely depressed you know he's sleeping all the time because the costume is sapping his energy uh there's 
I think it's in 258, there is a haunting panel of his face kind of cast in yellow, and then he thinks about all his problems. You know, I, I really miss those panels. By the-, <laughs> the floating so- heads of guilt? Yeah, the floating heads of guilt panel, and there there is a world class one in in the previous issue, and you know, and, and I think that's the pre- that's the same issue where he's he's sleep swinging around the city. Uh, you know, Peter doesn't get to be in the sunshine ever, and I would say one more thing about reading this as as a kid and reading it many many times. My understanding, I'm from Kansas. My understanding of Central Park comes from Ron Friends' drawing in this, and it still looks like he drew it in here. It is one of the great site-specific Marvel issues that there's ever been. And, you know, that's always been one of the hallmarks of Marvel, setting it apart for everybody else, is that this is New York, and this really is. I would maybe rank this just immediately behind Ross Andrews' Museum of Natural History in the Stegron story from the 70s. Sorry, I couldn't finish that sentence. <laughs> oh, that's how your and I friendship was born, Mark, arguing over the Stegron issue. Yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you guys do know that just like four issues before this, uh, Spidey Face is off with the Red Ghost and his Super Apes. <laughs> In the New York Library. <laughs> it's absurd. Is that the and, one that JMD filled, filled in on, though, or is that a, am I? Am no, I it wasn't. It oh no, no, no. That was that was the that was part of the Falco rap. But I think that was um. Was did Friends illustrate that, or was that one yes, of the? Yes, uh, I just I just read it last night. Okay, I didn't know if that was because I know Leonardo did a couple of those issues too. So <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> I feel like people mostly remember the DeFalco Friends run for the fact, you know, the complications in the back office and the fact that the Hobgoblin story didn't work out and uh, that the run kind of falls apart and also had two spectacular fill-in issues, you know, 267, the commuter Kameth, which you guys have have covered, and, of course, uh, whatever happened to Clubber Lang, is that his name? Uh, but Crusher I, Hogan. Crusher Hogan. Who's Clubber Lang? That's probably from Rocky or something. Or maybe, yes, maybe Nintendo Punch Out. <laughs> Whatever happened to Thunderlips? <laughs> <laughs> but I believe that their run started incredibly strong. And I would say that the true essential comic here is not just this issue. If this had been the first issue I'd picked up when I was that kid, I don't know that I would have been bit the way I was. The first issue I picked up as a kid was number 257. And I'm not just going to get nostalgic on you. I think I had the spectacular luck to pick up possibly the best first issue you could get that issue has it's spider-man versus puma on the cover it's the one where spider-man's arm is in a sling uh he's puma is knocking the hell out of him uh and mary jane is trying to get into spider-man's apartment and it's the one the 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 fight is spectacular it's one of the best uh fights i think that friends ever drew it's got so many clever beats they fight in a gymnasium and a health club uh there's a wonderful two-panel beat where uh, Puma is about to throw barbells at Spider-Man, but Spider-Man webs them to the wall. And then it ends as so few great Spider-Man fights do these days with Spider-Man kind of leaving the fight to save civilians from a bunch of gym equipment that Puma has thrown at him. And Spider-Man does this at great pain to himself and he falls and collapses on the top of a city bus and puma a man of honor or a puma of honor a cat of honor you know, allows him to get away you you, you all remember this i'm sorry i'm belaboring it so long there is almost every what seems to me absolutely key fundamental element of peter parker's heroism you know in that fight and then it's followed up with Peak soap operatics, which is he goes back home, forgets Mary Jane is there, and she says, I'm tired of pretending I don't know that you're secretly Spider-Man. And that is the turning point for the Mary Jane character. I think that is a turning point rather than this issue. And then if you take that issue and number 258, which is the great uh, learning about the costume issue, and then this issue, you have you know one of the great – High water Spider-Man runs. I think this is the best non-Roger Stern Spider-Man that there was in the 200s. Perhaps I'm just being greedy and trying to make prolong my love of of these three issues because, yeah, I think we're going to talk about some of those other issues in future Essentials episodes, and uh, and 
but you're right. Well, that makes sense. You'd have to. You you would have to. Yes. <laughs> there is a big story that gets resolved in those. Well, this makes me curious about you, Alan, a, a little bit. Um, you starting with the black costume. Uh, does is that your preferred Spider-Man costume? And I'm curious, uh, what were your ha- habits as a child picking up this comic? Well, like I said, I was at the spinner rack, and uh, you know, my brother read Fantastic Four, and that seemed kind of grown up to me. I don't know if it really was. And I, I was into Star Wars, but something about the ish cover of 257, the way Spider-Man's eyes, as drawn by friends, you know, look so panicked and droopy as uh, Puma is, you know, beating him. It was so colorful and yet so desperate. It felt fun yet serious at the same time in a way that I think has been too rarely really nailed throughout the series. And uh, it just, it was the perfect, this just the perfect issue. Uh, I then stuck with it, you know, like I said, until the, the early 300s. But I must have read that issue again and again and again, wishing they were all like that. And I haven't read it in years and rereading it uh, this week to talk to you guys. I, I still I, I still think that, you know, it was great circumstance. If, if that had been the 10th issue I'd read rather than the first, I still think I would prize it as much. Great. I think what shocks me is that MJ getting kidnapped is what got you off the book and not fat suit Daredevil in, during the uh, gang war arc about 20 issues prior to that. I remember <laughs> really losing the thread of gang war. Yeah, I think there might have been some delays with those coming out or maybe I missed an issue or something. And it was the first time I'd had – you know, this was – I don't know if Shooter was gone yet, but Marvel seemed to be losing the Shooter rule, which is that every book should be comprehensible to somebody who picks it up. And I remember in the late gang war, not understanding what was going on or who's who or not really caring. And uh, Well, that's when the office office totally went foobar because you had uh, Priest filling in for DeFalco and I think DeFalco got fired and then you had Spider-Man vs. Wolverine and Ned Leeds getting killed and... <laughs> exactly, I think, like, and I, think, I, I will think say this that one was like, "We'll make the foreigner hobgoblin," and everyone was like, "What?" <laughs> and then the book kind of writes itself at uh, what was it two ninety two, where Michelini takes over, and, and kind of like finally gets it, like like from an editing standpoint, just finally streamlines it. But I immediately lost interest. I mean, I just yeah. it felt like the stakes weren't high, the characters weren't as real as they'd been, and the marriage seemed to me to absolutely come out of nowhere. You know, I, I, I don't, I've never really heard any Spider-Man fan make this argument before, so I might just be strange. But the marriage felt absolutely forced to me, and I thought kind of ruined the character for quite a while. I know it wasn't just that. I know that with good writing like JMS that the marriage could work and could be really interesting. But I think I had a sense even then that these characters are not mine. They belong to everybody and that no change to them really should be permanent. Uh, Let me ask you guys, have you read the follow-up? issue to this uh, issue where Mary, in Spectacular, where Mary Jane goes to visit her sister Gail um, and, and check in on, on what her family is like and make amends with her. When was that? I think it was a, a year or two after this story. Mark, do you know for certain? Well, well I think that was an ASM arc because I, I, that was like right before he proposes, isn't it? Like she goes out to Pittsburgh. Or is that another story that I th- precedes I th- that one? I think I think it's in the pages of Spectacular, but I, I could be wrong. I I, I was say because there's definitely a, an arc in in ASM that kind of concludes with her coming back from Pittsburgh and resolving stuff with her sister and being able to accept Peter's out of nowhere marriage proposal yeah. that that Alan loved. <laughs> it wasn't the proposal I could buy. It was her accepting it that I couldn't buy. Right. Peter well, makes rash, dumb decisions all the time. Peter, I'm not Spider Man anymore. You know. Say she'd only rejected him a hundred issues earlier. I guess you can't have someone like reject you twice. Back then, a hundred <laughs> issues was a long time. You know, now That's not so much. <laughs> Can I ask you guys this though? If there was an issue like this maybe four years ago about Carly Cooper. How would you feel? Do, do you think that an issue like this could work, could win you over to a new character? Or 
is the cast kind of set? I mean, uh, I don't want to speak for Mark, but I'm not on the group of people that really don't like Carly Cooper. I always kind of liked her because I feel like she is something that a lot of the other women that they tried to set Spider-Man up with, uh, um, particularly Deb, uh, doesn't have, <laughs> which which is a backbone. Uh, Deb Whitman. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, like, when when she finds out that Peter has been lying to her... She's like, I don't need to be with you anymore. Like, mm-hmm. I don't need to be with someone that lies to me. And I, and I always respected that about the character. And I could see why people felt like she was forced on him. But, uh, I mean, amongst a friend group, like, with two people that are somewhat similar, I didn't feel like it was too much of a stretch that those two were going to end up together, forced or not. I mean... On a much smaller scale, I do feel we kind of got this a little bit in Volume Three with Anna Maria. There was like that. Mm-hmm. That, and I think Dan, this was probably the one issue from Volume Three that we liked to, we really liked above all the others, was it was just that you know where she's, you know, kind of comes out with the fact that she knows the deal with Peter and and being Spider Man and like you know they kind of have this very frank discussion. And I think we kind of commended the fact that like, this was like two adults having a conversation and it, it, it seemed very, you know, it made, it made me like Anna Maria more, but then like she kind of went, we went from there to being like this, like super helpful sidekick that would do things better than Spider-Man can half the time, <laughs> uh, which, um, you know, so, I mean, yeah, I think, I think in the right circumstances, it, Issues like this, I mean, or or your character development like this, it can be earned and it, it it would be great. I mean, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I don't, see. I I don't. I, I guess I'm in the middle of with with Carly Cooper. I don't dislike her, but like I I don't know if I ever saw the potential to really just want to dive into that character. I I don't know. I mean, I just feel just like depends. we never really got to know too much about her. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and makes, maybe that- it makes things like her getting a tattoo seem all the more like bizarre and and out of nowhere because we don't mm-hmm. know what the psychology is that would provoke that. I mean, getting a goblin tattoo or getting a Spider-Man tattoo. No, I was just going to say. I mean, not to keep going back and forth on this, but with you know, kind of getting these character-centric intros to someone. I mean, like, well, not to jump into flash reviews here, Dan, but I mean, this newest issue of Carnage. You know, it opens with a totally brand new character that we've never met before. And, you know, as I mentioned in the review, the way Conway built built this, you know, this character up with these little details, you know, I was like, I want to know more about this person. You know what I mean? So it can be, you know, I don't think like the, the cast is set in terms of the spider. I mean, you know, if the character is introduced in the right way, um, I think these kind of issues that go really more in depth would be welcomed. Oh, I think you're right. I think that the Anna Maria example is a really strong one. I'd forgotten how much I had come to care about her during Superior so quickly. And I think if Mary Jane was introduced now the way she was originally introduced, we would flat out reject that character <laughs> as well. And that's why I said, like, to me, this issue is important because it saves her from just being this Silver Age girlfriend Uh, And makes her into something like now when people arrive on the scene in comics, like you said, Mark, they come with a level of complexity. I mean, even Anna Maria. Right. I mean, a lot of that complexity comes from how she is, you know, outwardly different than other people. But immediately Dan Slott gave her an inner strength to stand up to bullies Mm -hmm. that made her attractive to Otto. And. You know, Mary Jane did not enter with that. And this is, to me, about as artful as you could get of giving a character with the history that MJ has and injecting what we want out of our modern characters back into her. And that's what's so interesting about it. And Dan, I liked what you said at the beginning about uh, this being the rare retcon that really works, because this is this is a retcon that adds emotional weight to the previous appearances. It's not like, oh, guess what? It turns out actually the West Coast Avengers were there behind Doctor Doom's time machine the whole time. It's it's not like that. Now there's that one brilliant panel in in this issue where where Mary Jane's in Romeo and Juliet in high school or college. I forget which one it is, and she's saying. 
you know, Romeo is saying, Juliet, where are you? And she's saying, here I am, tiger. That makes it clear that the Mary Jane we've always known has been fundamentally her performance. And there is something there that it doesn't take anything away from the previous issues. It actually adds to them. Absolutely. When we were talking about Spider-Man Blue, uh, you know, that book gets to revisit all of, you know, those older times with a, a modern look back at them. But I can't help read that book and read any of the uh, Silver Age issues without thinking, oh, this is Mary Jane putting on a show. And it works every time. Hmm. Or as Blind Al said about Silver Age Mary Jane, oh, it's a shame to see the kids on crack. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, have you, know, you read uh, that Deadpool issue? No, I, I don't really care too much for Deadpool. Deadpool, I find I find it kind of funny and also just a little too much like riding the bus when I was 10 back in Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I reviewed the Deadpool movie, and I actually wrote a a, a, a lengthy tribute <laughs> to the dirtiest kid on my bus, <laughs> who I know will love this movie so so much. You know, and I'm going to wander a field here and say that my proudest moment at the Village Voice, other than interviewing Dan Slott, was when I got to write the review of, Amer- of Amazing Spider-Man Two, the movie. And the first 400 words of my review, I swear to you, are just me summarizing every interesting thing that had happened in the previous three years in the Spider. Spider-Man comics, and then pointing out that, meanwhile, in the movies, which this is our fifth one in 12 years, the poster for this one promises his greatest battle begins. Why is he always still beginning? No, thank you. Never mind. <laughs> uh, no, it's just, I'm just getting flashbacks. It's, it's okay. As, as, as we're conducting this, um, this review or flashback, whatever you want to call it, I'm taking a peek at my Facebook feed and seeing some of our, our friends' reviews on Batman vs. Superman. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, needless to say, I, I, think, I think the battle beginning would be is in better shape than Batman vs. Superman right now. <laughs> I'm sorry, gentlemen. I, I am discursive. I, I wander. Please. Uh, Have you heard our show? <laughs> yes, you guys. You guys actually keep on target, on topic, pretty well. Just don't talk about Canadian bacon with us. All right, all right. You know, I would like to say one thing about radioactive sperm, though, uh, and then I, <laughs> which is that in two fifty eight, an issue I expect you will talk about later in another essential. Uh, I would suggest maybe just add two fifty nine to that essential story and be <laughs> to say they're all one thing. But in two fifty eight, there is the creepiest sexualized Spider-Man moment uh, of the kind of what I would think of as the innocent years, which is when he and Black Cat are fighting because, uh, you know, she has jumped in on him and Mary Jane. It's a very tense, very high emotional scene. Uh, Black Cat is about to leave the apartment. Spider-Man has told her to go away. I don't want to see you right now. And then his costume webs her before she goes out the window. The webbing just leaps organically out of him. And it's so much, so more direct even than the kind of jokes about wrist webs in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man. <laughs> I mean, this is lurid in a good way. <laughs> it's always to do with Black Cat, too. Yeah. Well, it, I know. He's shouting at her and he's turned on. I mean, there's no way around it. He is very turned on to be in between these two women. Well, Alan, we've got to bring you back for our sexually charged Spider-Man episodes. <laughs> <laughs> It's in there, but it's not it's not leering the way Mary Jane and lingerie with her curly fry permanent would be later during the McFarlane years. Oh my goodness. Once again, you're destroying my ten year old worldview. That, that was Mark's introduction to women. I mean, and naturally he would marry a redhead. Her hair was always the, looked like a, a basket of curly fries, and she's always got a dimple that looks like one of Moon Knight's like boomerangs. <laughs> Let's move away from this review and get into our Flash Thompson splash reviews.
Hey, Mark, uh, we're doing our favorite segment again, but I got to ask you, you know, last week we had that really, like, heartfelt letter from Flash, even though he insulted me. Uh, did you get another letter from him? How's he doing? Is he, how's his recovery going? Yeah, I mean, you know, they're not letting me call him. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, I, you know, I think when we had Betty on a few weeks ago, I mean, you know, that wasn't just Betty being cross with us for the for the fun of it. I, I, I think there really are some hard feelings here. Um, but I did get another letter and I, I, I'm going to read it to you, Dan. Um, but for the record, it, it, I, I'm a little concerned. This might be it. We, I, I mean, I'm we might... shielding myself for another attack. Well, no, I, let me let me read it to you. I'll, I'm going to do my flash voice again, okay? Um, so, um, yeah, I just feel like it needs that for full effect. Well, so, I hope your impression has gotten better since last week. Well, the letter discusses that. Here we go. Dear Amazing Spider Talk, let me start by saying I heard your last episode and Mark's imitation of me is the worst imitation I have ever heard in my life. I am on the road to recovery. I am growing wise beyond my years. And I have found that the two of you making fun of me and my issues is no longer what's best. So it is with this that I bid you both adieu Eugene Flash Thompson, P.S. Gavazdan, you still suck. Well, I got to say being insulted there actually felt like justified and earned. So I'll <laughs> give him that. I mean, you know, the thing is he really seems to have it hung up for you. But, um, you know, me on the other hand. He just doesn't like my my imitation of him. You, the actual instigator of all this. Yeah. So, Dan, we might have to find some new special guests to help introduce Flash Reviews. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have to figure that out um, before our next set of episodes because, I mean, you know, I don't think we can count on Flash anymore. Um, so, I don't know. Maybe uh, we can have some Deb Whitman reviews or maybe we can have... Um, some Robbie Robertson reviews or Phil Urick reviews or <laughs> as we're trying to move away from abuse, the first person you jump to is the, perhaps the most abused person in the Spider-Man war universe. Very true. So I don't know what to say with that. So speaking of, uh, <laughs> speaking of odd D list characters and stories, Spider-Woman number five is our first uh, issue that we'll be talking about. Uh, this is the uh, the issue after the birth of the baby. And, Dan, do, do you want to start things off and I will count you in? Absolutely, I will. All right. Hold on. Let me, uh, you know, get some dead air going here. Stop. Okay, I'm ready. In three, two, one. Well, Mark, the baby is here, and with it comes the knowledge of who the father is, and I'm not telling. This issue finishes up Rodriguez and Hopeless's masterful arc with grace and style. I've never had a child, Mark, that I know of, but this story <laughs> felt honest and truthful to that experience and the emotions that come with it, while also finding a natural and amazing way of fitting superheroics back into this book while promising an incredible new status quo that I cannot wait to read. I'm nervous about Spider-Man... Not Spider-Man. I'm nervous about Spider-Woman's future in comics, so I can't urge you listeners enough. Order the first trade of this book and pick up the Spider-Women titles that are coming out. I can't put this plainly enough. This is the best book in the Spider-Line, period. Fan club certified. Good stuff. Pick up that trade, everybody. Yeah. All right, Mark. Three, two, one. Dan, I was wrong in my assessment of the last issue of Spider-Man. That wasn't the best superhero comic I've read in recent memory. 
This one was. See what I did there? Uh, no, it, it saddens me to see Spider-Woman doing so poorly in terms of sales, as you alluded to, Dan. But while I wait on its inevitable, yet hopefully not imminent, cancellation, let me just continue to linger in this beautifully conceived story from Dennis Hopeless and Javier Rodriguez. In terms of character and world building, Spider-Woman number five is as good as it gets in comics. It perfectly captures the euphoric madness of being a first-time parent. And as someone who's only four years removed myself from a lot of this, uh, I, I actually felt myself tearing up a little bit from its accuracy uh, of all the gamut of emotions that new parents go through. Uh, plus, this is all accomplished by staying so incredibly true to the roots of the character and to the fun of this series. Porcupine as a nanny? Well, that was just wonderfully perfect. What a masterpiece. Fan club service. Mark, uh, somebody asked me when we put this up on our site as a 10 out of 10 in the review. Uh, they said, you know, what about – you can't – you're calling this thing a classic. How can you call it a classic when you do all these reviews on your podcast? And I said, well, classics are born every day, you know, and, and this is the one that I think was born this week. Yeah, agreed. I think that I think this arc specifically is going to be looked back upon as – one of the great, I don't know, I mean, I don't want to deride it by saying a beast story. I mean, this is just one of the great stories from the spider line I think we've seen, Absolutely. period. Well, we're really high on that one. What about Web Warriors number five, another book that's really dwindling in sales? Uh, do you want to do that one, Mark? Yeah, well, I think you, you, you know, let's stay with the form here. You kick things off here in three, two, one. All right. Well, Mark, reading the opening of this story, I was concerned that Web Warriors was spinning its wheels and telling the same fun, but jam-packed with multidimensional nonsense that it had been telling in issues prior. And I was totally wrong. I thought this issue really upped the stakes for this series, even if I don't think that this book will execute on killing off any of its main characters. But the dramatic turn at the end of this book was awesome. I mean, it was rendered in an amazing style by artist David Baldion, and it has me excited to see how this book completely changes up its threats with the second arc. Gone will be the Electros, and I can't wait to see what this team has to face next. Fan club certified. Awesome stuff. All right, Mark. Three, two, one. So the series that nobody is reading continues to be great fun, though it's very difficult to read this book at this point and not wonder uh, when the plug is so going to suddenly be pulled, which makes a lot of the plot points that occur in this issue come across to me as a little more gimmicky and extreme. That's not to say that this issue is still not filled with a ton of wonder. Dinosaur Electros might be the greatest thing to ever exist in the history of the comic book medium. Uh, but of all the characters to sacrifice to the gods of cliffhangers, uh, why did this series have to mess around with Mayday Parker? I'm sure that went over with... Uh, some circles. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's not a slide against this book or even this story, but it's something to keep an eye on, especially if readership doesn't improve, which I assume it won't. Um, so I'm saying fan club certified, but you know, if this just becomes like Suicide Squad for Web Warriors, I don't know. It'll become not so certified. <laughs> I guess. I, I, I kind of like that, honestly. I, I, I do, too. I, I just worry, like, you know, is is the book is going to become a gimmick of who are we going to kill next? Maybe, but not actually, but sort of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel you on that one. Yeah, that's all. I, I lived through that in the 90s. You did, too. <laughs> Um, Carnage number six, Dan. It's a second arc for Carnage. Surprise! <laughs> Who would have thought we would get that? <laughs> well, let's hear what you said, what you think about it in three, two, one. So, Mark, just when I was growing tired of the coal mine terror of Carnage, Jerry Conway completely switches things up from claustrophobia to agoraphobia on the open ocean. I love the way Mike Perkins really emphasized the space here in his layouts and incredibly detailed pencil work. I mean, this book is gorgeous. Mm. Every image would make a great poster for some pulpy grindhouse film from the 70s. Like, I can think of the open sea thrillers that I love, and, and this is right in that league. I'm not sure where this story is going, but that we got a Life of Pi story between Carnage and a young girl who is circumnavigating the world proves that this story under Jerry Conway's pencil, or pen rather, could go literally anywhere and truly change Carnage in a way that we've never seen before. So I'm calling this one Fan Club Certified. Okay, Dan. Well, now here I am. You already know how I reviewed the book, so here's my little 30, uh, 60 second version of it. All right, and go. 
It's the second arc of Carnage, and this one starts out as strongly as the first one. We get a new character, one whose name I can't pronounce, a la the main character of this book, so I'll just call her Jujubee. Anyway, Conway and Perkins do a wonderful job building up the supporting character and making us care just uh, just so much about her so that her inevitable confrontation with Carnage uh, just could be lined with palatable tension. Needless to say, it was the sickest I felt while reading a comic in a while, and I mean that in the best way possible because it means the creators have accomplished what they set out to do. I do wonder how much longer the series can continue to exist. So hopefully Conway and Perkins get to finish out this arc before the plug is pulled. Fan club certified. Seems to be a theme evolving with, I don't know how much longer the series is going to be around for, but. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be curious to see if the spider women arc boosts sales at all. Because it it seems clearly uh, aimed at that intention. We'll see. I mean, you know. We'll see which series gets the biggest jump from it. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, hopefully, I, I shouldn't say hopefully not the one that needs it the least, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so speaking of one of the women caught up in that upcoming story, it's Silk, number six. Uh, yes, Dan. Let us know what you think of Silk in three, two, one. Yeah, I think this series has been a bit all over the place since it relaunched. I know you and I have been back and forth on our positive, negative reviews. But uh, I thought in this issue, everything starts to kind of come together, and we get some really interesting character developments for Silk. Yes, she might be posing as a bad guy, but is it really all a deception? Silk's actions in this book really raised my eyebrows, and that we got some wonderful introspection from her and a discussion with her therapist to further underscore it, I thought made this a special issue. I really don't know where this character is going to go, and I kind of hope that it continues to uh, shock and awe us with its twists and turns. The artwork here, though, is still finding its footing, and I mean really trying to find its footing. There are some really bizarre proportions and foreshortening issues in here, but I'm digging this series more than ever in this new relaunch. So, fan club certified for me. All righty. Count me in, Dan. All right, and three, two, go. Yeah, I get this sense that every new issue of Silk presents us with a different perspective view of the character, and that's not necessarily a good thing. This new volume of Silk is still having a very difficult time grabbing onto a central thesis and sticking with it. Is Silk a fish out of water trying to find her family? Is she an angry loner who resents the hand in life she's been dealt? Is she a super spy in training who is too much of a loose cannon to excel? We're getting snippets of all these stories, but not enough of any one of them in this specific issue to truly make me feel like this series is coherent. I want to like Silk, and I do to some extent, but until all the parties in charge can come to some consensus on its direction, this will always feel like a middle-of-the-road series to me, and I don't expect that to change with a giant crossover coming up to distract us for the next few months. So I'm saying Puny Parker. That's fair. Nice, even balance between the two of us. Yeah. There we are anyway. Pretty much, because, you know, we don't share a brain, Dan, even when it seems like we do. Yeah. Well, maybe we could switch brains and see if people can tell. Yes. And speaking of which, why don't we switch brains and say goodbye to our fans and listeners out there? That's fair, Mark. Well, of course, you can find all of our new Amazing Spider Talk and old Superior Spider Talk podcasts at SuperiorSpiderTalk.com or find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching for Amazing Spider Talk. And, of course, as always, if you manage to do that, which doesn't take that much of a leap technologically, please make sure to leave us a rating and a comment to let us know how we're doing and we'll read it on the air. And that goes the same with any opinions you have on this comic 259, 258, 257, whatever you're including, send us questions and email them to us at amazingspidertalk at gmail.com or call us at 9redgoblin, which Mark revealed that he was the Red Goblin last episode, or tweeted us with OK to print and we'll address and read them on the air. I said I was the Red Goblin? I don't remember that. Did I get, did I like black out for that? I, I think your amnesia <laughs> kicked back in. Oh, okay. I see. Uh, well, also be sure to check out both of our Facebook pages and subscribe to our sister podcast, The Ultimate Spin, to keep up with the adventures of Spider Gwen and Miles Morales. Also, don't forget to check out our friendly neighborhood Spider Talk Members Club that helps to support the show. This week, we have another members-only podcast for all you guys to enjoy. Alan, you're joining us for this week's episode. Alan, what did we discuss on that episode? 
Well, it hasn't happened yet. We're going to talk about the time I actually got Dan Slott to sit down for an extensive interview and what I learned about him and what I made of him. And, uh, you know, Mark, if you're Red Goblin, uh, I, I guess I should admit to you guys now, uh, good buddies, I'm Razorback. So hit me with a 10-4. You got your ears on? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, uh, Buford. Uh, what is his name? Buford Hollis. Buford, Buford Hollis. Hollis. Of course. It's did you do a whole column about Razorback then? Come on. I did. I did. How did I forget Hollis? You know, in the back of my head, it was saying Hollis, but I wasn't 100% certain. <laughs> <laughs> he is it's the Buford that matters. Yeah, Buford. I got it. I got it. And he's got his, his big hog, his car, which uh, <laughs> is one of his superpowers is that he can – uh, master driving any vehicle the minute he gets into it, which is why he's able to fly spaceships uh, <laughs> into outer space. Uh, so there you go. Has he ever fought overdrive? I don't know, but I don't know where he is right now because we had an alternate Razorback show up in Spider-Woman this week. Really? Oh, good Lord. I haven't picked up that issue. I, I, gotta, I, I have it. I haven't read it yet. I can't wait. Well, there you go. I, I think Razorback versus Overdrive is like Dan Slot's just like hearing this right now and being like, oh my God, <laughs> must write the story now. <laughs> well, you have to throw in the Spider Mobile too to make it a Dan Slot right. story. Oh, right. it's going to be like, you know, Fury Road Spider Man. Oh, man. <laughs> You're, this sounds great. This sounds great. Well, Alan, if you ever write that story, uh, where would uh, our fine listeners find you on the internet to read it? Oh, uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Studies and Crap. Yes, there is a story behind that. We don't need to go into it. That's at Studies and Crap. And you can find uh, all my writing about movies and TV and what have you at The Village Voice and LA Weekly and all over. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, Mark, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, yes, you can find me at Chasing ASM Blog on Twitter, and of course, you can find me on SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. We're talking about some mysteries, uh, including uh, probably a few days after this podcast is released, uh, one of the mysteries that we were referring to in the uh, first part of the show, uh, you know, involving a certain masked villain whose reveal was botched by editorial politics. But, you know, I've never talked about this character before, right, Dan? No, never. It'll be a first for us. And, of course, you can find me on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk and uh, on SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. So, anyway, well, guys, I want to thank you a lot for having me on. This has been great fun, and thanks for doing such a strong and interesting show and getting me through my, my treadmill workouts. You know, when I'm on the, the treadmill, I'm usually on my CB talking to Razorback. And a while ago, we started having this conversation with this this trucker who was running a freight of Coors all the way down to Texarkana. And I, do you know who that man was, Mark? Yeah, you know, I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, uh, Alan, because um, I'm, I'm a craft beer snob myself. But yeah, uh, my Uncle Ben, he, he was a truck driver for years, going up and down old I-95, uh, you know, from from the, the, the north to the south, uh, salt of the earth kind of a guy, you know, shipping the Coors, the Budweiser, you know, some smokes. And speaking of which, you know, that's where it all went horribly wrong. Um, you know, he, he, he was taking cartons of cigs. Uh, they call them cigs. I don't know. That seems like a pretty, pretty salt of the earth phrase there. And um, yeah, the I guess he he was just taking them into the wrong territory. And uh, you know, Jimmy Jimmy the Elbow, I think his name was part of the uh, the Magia family. Um, he just ripped Uncle Ben out of the truck. Said, "Where are you going with those cigs?" I, again, I don't know if they actually called it that. Um, you know, started wailing on him. Shockingly, he was very good with his knees, even though he was Jimmy the Elbow. <laughs> Where is this going? <laughs> you all laugh. I can't continue. Um, and and. Yeah, so I mean, he's getting these knees to his head. Oh, it's it, it was just a brutal scene, and and you know that that was that was the last truck trip Uncle Ben went on. Breaker one nine, breaker one nine, but he got on a CB, and he went out. Buford, 
you gotta let my nephew know something before the lights go out with great podcasts must also come amazing spider talk <laughs> I'm not, I don't even know where I'm going with this, and I'm laughing already. Hold on. <laughs> it's transcendently dumb, the idea. <laughs>